Yesterday we we looked at the the context for the practice of mindfulness of or full awareness and that is the overarching experience of being here having been born being subject to sickness being subject to aging and ultimately and inevitably being subject to death. The Buddhist practice is not about becoming proficient in certain meditative techniques, be they of a Tibetan or a Zen or a Theravada type, in order that we might perhaps gain a degree of well-being or calm and peace of mind. That might, of course, be a desirable side effect, but where the Buddha starts from in his teaching is in waking up to and becoming concerned with our existential predicament of having been thrown into this world and as far as we know without having had any say in the matter at all as we grow up we become conscious that we are here that we have been um, thrust into this place that the only certainty that now awaits us is that we will be expelled from it. As I think I mentioned yesterday, this is what the Chinese call the great matter of birth and death. (coughs) Now, we find this, uh, exactly the same thing, described as what it was that prompted this young man, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, to leave home and to embark on a quest. Now, all of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the, the legend of the Buddha that he grew up, was raised in a rather luxurious environment um, in preparation perhaps for becoming a king but then he grew tired of this luxury and arranged to be taken outside the walls of his palace into the outlying countryside over which one day he might rule And although his father made the utmost effort to make sure he did not see anything that would upset him, nonetheless, he comes across a sick person. On the next trip, he sees an aging person, crippled with age, as the text says. 
And then he sees a corpse. And on another occasion, he sees a wandering ascetic or monk. Now, this particular story um, does not, in fact, have any or very little bearing on the actual life of the man Siddhartha Gautama. This well-known account does not appear in the early texts in relation to the Buddha himself, but it's used um, by him to describe a Buddha of a former period many eons ago. In other words, this um, description is archetypal rather than historical. In other words, it's a mythic way of describing the universal condition of humanity. It stretches imagination way too far to imagine that this young man could have grown up without ever having encountered sickness, aging or death. We know for a start that his mother died when he was only a few days old. So what this story is getting at is again the recognition that all of us, whoever we are, will encounter one day or another and that is the fact of our existence, of our having been born, of our being subject to sickness and ageing and death, but also, and this is where the figure of the, the wandering ascetic or monk comes in, we will also encounter um, ways or ways of life that um, can serve as a response to this condition of birth and death rather than simply continuing in our lives to to close ourselves off to the implications of these of these primary facts and in fact the idea of the palace walls is really a symbol for a former society that lives in denial of existence, of birth and death. And I think our modern consumerist society has become particularly adept in keeping those palace walls firmly intact. It's very unlikely that many of us um, will have encountered, say, a dead body. Or if we have, it's probably been tarted up with makeup and suits and combed hair um, in a coffin. Um, our society is embarrassed um, by ageing, by sickness. These things are kept out of sight. So the story of the Buddha is not specific to a particular time, 400, 500 BC, but it's a way of um, exposing the, the strategies of denial 
that are present in pretty much every human society. Understandably, when we are alive, when we're healthy, when we have responsibilities, we do not wish to dwell on the fact that these things are impermanent, um, highly tentative, unreliable, they could end at any time. We wish to preserve a sense that things are actually going to work out for the best in the end. But unfortunately, uh, this world is not the kind of place where things work out for the best in the end. Because in the end, we'll die. Or, as Harry Hill put it, Harry Hill being a, a mafia gangster in America, Life's a bitch and then you die. Shit happens. We don't uh, want these things, expect these things, but they happen. So the story of the Buddha's leaving home, going forth from home to homelessness, is really um, a story that is a model or a paradigm uh, for each of us. Again, we may know, I suspect it's impossible not to know, that we're subject to sickness and aging and death. And the account of the Buddha leaving the palace is very much an account where a person puts aside or brackets off the uh, the, the, the solace and the uh, consolation provided by society and is prepared to open his or her eyes to the reality of what is going on. And so although we may have experienced sickness, we may have witnessed ageing, we might have been to a number of funerals, it's still quite possible that we haven't really um, integrated or haven't really taken on board what those things mean for me. What are the real implications of that? Again, if we go back to that passage I cited yesterday in the Sutta Nipata, you have this image of the cattle sitting in the field, chomping away on the grass, and they are oblivious to the implication that every day one of them is taken off to the abattoir. They just keep chomping away. They just keep in the image of Mara suckling away um, on the teat of life, not noticing What's going on? And I think it's very difficult to really notice what's going on. Our whole organism in some ways seems to be primed to forget or not to see, not to notice. And I think in many ways the practice of meditation, the practice of mindfulness, the practice of awareness is a practice of, um, of remembering that this, in fact, is our condition. 
And we need to do this because our tendency, our instinct is not to remember this. And as a consequence, our lives in some level lack a kind of depth, an urgency, a kind of uh, vitality, in fact. As we pointed out yesterday, the idea that um, by becoming conscious of death, one's own death, one also, paradoxically perhaps, becomes that much more intensely aware of the fact that you are alive. So it's an affirmation of life, not a denial of life, such an awareness of death. So in any case, if we go back to where the Buddha starts, like us, suddenly or perhaps gradually becoming conscious of his condition as a human being, this then gives rise to certain questions. And I suspect that anyone who has decided to take a week out of their life to sit in silence in a retreat centre is probably not doing this because you think it'll be more fun than sitting on a beach in the Caribbean. Presumably, certain questions have been posed by your life that you wish quite um, seriously, perhaps rather passionately, to address. And this is really what um, happened to Siddhartha Gautama. Uh, at some point, he woke up to the fact that he was mortal, that he suffered, that things pass, that life is uncertain. And rather than tip him into a kind of depression, which might be the response from some people, he sees this as a question that urgently demands some kind of response. And this is what moves him to leave his home and, as the story goes, to leave behind his young son and his wife and his parents and all of the responsibilities he would have had in his homeland of Sakya in order to get some kind of resolution to these questions that seemed at that point unavoidable for him. His life had become a question for him rather than simply a set of more or less interesting facts and stories. And that's what prompted his, his quest, which he subsequently calls um, an Arya Pariesana, a noble quest or an ennobling quest. Instead of spending one's time just searching for gratification or pleasure or success or whatever it is, one turns one's mind to these 
fundamental uh, questions of existence. What does it mean to be born, to be subject to death? I'm not going to go through the whole of uh, what the Buddha next did, but basically he explored, as we might today, the different uh, religious and spiritual practices and beliefs that were on offer, but came to, again, another brick wall. He could not find um, within the traditions of his day answers to these questions that really satisfied him. And again, I think the point here is um, to recognize that um, simply adopting a set of religious beliefs is almost certainly not going to be adequate to resolving in, a, in an authentic and in a, a heartfelt way the dilemma of your own life. And so although I may be speaking within a Buddhist frame of reference, simply by becoming a Buddhist is in itself not going to do a great deal. And this, is, I think, is very clear from the emphasis we find in most Buddhist traditions that we require, as it were, a practice, an engagement with these ideas that goes beyond just believing or uh, philosophically having some interest in these things to an actual engagement here and now with what is going on. Hence the the emphasis on on practice, on meditation, on awareness, on honesty, truthfulness, seeing what is occurring here and now, not just believing in something. And having the courage also to, to go beyond, to question some of the time-honoured doctrines or dogmas that you may find in Buddhism itself. So the Buddha's life, the story of his um, going forth from home to homelessness, is not an uncritical um, um, affirmation of the religion called Buddhism, but rather it's pointing to... um, a way of life that has an integrity, um, an honesty, a kind of ruthless honesty that each of us needs to work out for ourselves. Buddhist practice might help, but in the end, we're on our own. And so the Buddha's experience of, of practicing different kinds of meditation, doing what is described as ascetic practice at his time, and also probably spending a lot of time in discussion, in debate, in argument with people who were embarked on a similar search, this all led him to, again, another kind of impasse. And to resolve that impasse, remember now he's somehow gone beyond the promises that we've seen through the 
the consolations of the world. He's also seen through the um, promises of religion. And he's come back finally to his own being. And he sits beneath a tree, so the story goes, and at that point experiences some kind of breakthrough, some kind of insight, some kind of resolution. And we have to remember that this resolution can only um, be intelligible if it is the resolution to a particular dilemma. Often the word used at this point is enlightenment. But what is it that this enlightenment enlightened him to? I prefer to use the word awakening, which is much closer to what the word um, in Sanskrit and Pali means. It means bodhi is the word, which means to wake up. The Buddha woke up, and in fact the word Buddha means simply the awakened one, the one who's woken up. So something about the experience the Buddha had at that moment was comparable or similar to the experience we have every morning when we wake up coming out of a dream, coming out of a deep sleep, suddenly the alarm rings or something happens and we open our eyes and then we're here again. We're no longer unconscious, we're no longer in a dream experience where whatever's going on is really only a, an internal reflection of our own minds, our own brains. But now we're in a world with others. We're in a world of the senses. Uh, we're in a world over which we really have little control, that things will happen, that we don't foresee and can't predict. And we're in a world in which we are called upon to respond, to engage with something that is not oneself. That's the root of the metaphor of awakening, to wake up. <clears throat> now what I want to do um, this morning is to look at the text that um, describes um, the Buddha's experience of waking up. <clears throat> there are in fact in the Pali Canon a number of uh, accounts of this but the one that I'm going to focus on is the one that we find in uh, a, a rather unusual first person account of the awakening which comes from the discourse called the noble quest it's the 26th middle length discourse in the Pali Canon. And it's here that the Buddha describes leaving home, he describes doing these different meditation practices, and then he describes what it was that he woke up to. 
So this seems to be a rather good point to begin. I'll just read the text and then we'll go over it uh, sentence by sentence. This is the Buddha speaking. He says, This Dhamma I have reached is deep, hard to see, difficult to awaken to, quiet and sublime, not confined by thought, subtle, sensed by the wise. But people love their place. They delight and revel in their place. It is hard for people who love, delight and revel in their place to see this ground, the this conditioned, conditioned arising. And also hard to see this ground, the stilling of all formations, the relinquishing of all bases, the fading away of craving, desirelessness, stopping, nibbana. Were I to teach the Dhamma and others were not to understand me, that would be tiring and vexing for me. Now that's a fairly literal translation of the passage. Now, to unpack it, um, we'll take a bit of time. The a couple of things we need to point out. First of all, the Buddha doesn't speak of having awoken or having come to realize or know some truth. Often when we think of this word awakening or enlightenment, we think the Buddha has become enlightened to the truth. When we think of his uh, sitting beneath this tree and we think of the various iconographic depictions of that, we probably associate it with his having had some kind of mystical experience, an experience of something which is utterly transcendent and beyond, which we might in other religions call God, or the unconditioned, or um, the divine or simply the truth, or the absolute reality. But that language is really quite foreign to what the Buddha is saying here. None of those terms, none of that kind of language is here at all. He doesn't speak of his awakening as a higher kind of knowledge or knowing. I think it's quite striking that the words which would be rooted in the Sanskrit or Pali, nya, which means to know, don't occur in this passage. Instead, 
if we go to the very central uh, 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 sentence, the Buddha seems to be describing a kind of radical shift in perspective, a kind of seismic jolt from one way of being in this world to another. And he describes this in terms of of shifting from what he calls a place to the discovery or the awakening to a ground. Now, in the Pali, uh, these two words kind of mean the same thing, much in the same way as the English word place and ground could often be interchangeable. So it's quite probable here that he's playing on a subtle distinction between the way these words can have meaning for us. But people love their place, he says. They delight and revel in their place, but it is hard for people who delight and revel in their place to see this ground. So what's all that about? What does he mean by place and what does he mean by ground? And why is it that this uh, delight in place somehow obscures or prevents us from seeing our ground. Now we find a a similar uh, metaphor in this expression um, to go forth from home to homelessness. In, 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 in current Buddhist parlance, uh, this has become a phrase that describes the, uh, the process of becoming a monk or a nun. You go forth from home to homelessness. You leave behind your family life, your home, and you um, in, embrace a life in which you don't have a home. But I think the deeper meaning of that is not that you leave um, your home in Soli Hull and go and join a monastery in Hemel Hempstead because after all, all you're doing there is more or less just changing your clothes, taking some vows and taking a train across the country. But rather it refers to a movement um, deep within oneself similar to this movement he's describing here, of this shift from preoccupation with place to the discovery of a ground. So what is it that constitutes our home? What is it that constitutes our sense of place?
I think this can be understood in many ways. It can be understood certainly in a quite literal way in which we are often quite attached to our physical place. We may be very fond of the town or the village or the city in which we live. We might be very fond of our country, of our nation, or nowadays as Europeans, as our, of our continent. And it's not as though that is a problem. The problem arises when we begin to have a certain uh, excessive belief or attachment in the value of that thing. We become attached to it. So when uh, England, for example, beat another country at football, I feel a certain frisson of satisfaction, particularly if it's Germany that has been defeated. <laughs> so it's, you, when one cannot, as it were, not have a place, you'll always be British or French or Argentinian or Chinese. You can't not be that. The Buddha was always a Sakyan. In fact, he referred to himself as that constantly through his life. It's inevitable. The problem is when you begin to think that that identity, and here I think we're getting to the point, it's a question of identity. I am a X, Y, Z. And a certain conceit, a certain pride in that, a certain attachment it gives me a sense of worth and that very easily becomes a sense of superiority in its extreme instances it ends up as nationalism or a kind of sectarianism where you really hold on to the fact that you are this kind of nationality and that needs to be defended at all costs. You become an anti-immigrationist. And I don't suspect anybody here is that, but nonetheless you can see where it comes from. And we all have within us the seeds of that kind of um, opinion or belief or prejudice. So, despite the fact we cannot not have a place, we can very easily become rather obsessed about it. For many of us, we probably don't take these ideas so seriously, so our place becomes maybe not primarily our physical location, it becomes, let's say, our place in society where we feel ourselves to, to be in our social world, our position in a company, say, our position in society. Again, it's another kind of place. It gives us a sense of worth. 
it gives us a sense of where we stand in relation to other people, who we look up to, who we can look down upon. It's all about positioning and gaining from that a certain sense of identity. Or it could be that our place is not so much anymore with where we live or what our rank is in society, but it becomes, let's say, our religious identity. I become a Christian or a Muslim or a Buddhist. That's another kind of place, another kind of attachment we can have, another place to get stuck. Or it could be politics. You know, I'm a liberal or I'm a conservative or I'm a uh, whatever. Again, it's about having a sense of place and then delighting and reveling in that place. Now, why is that a problem? For the Buddha, it's a problem because it blocks us, it prevents us from seeing our truer ground. In other words, we get somehow locked into this identity and that serves as a kind of a, a kind of a blindfold, something that shuts us off. It shuts us off in particular from birth, sickness, aging, death. It shuts us off from experiencing the world in all of its variety, experiencing the world in its diversity its richness, its depth perhaps. It cuts us off from something. It, in modern jargon, it alienates us. It severs certain connections to the whole, to the biosphere, to the, 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 the complex net and web of connections that sustain us. And we come to live in a little bubble, a little Buddhist bubble, or a Labour Party bubble, or a managing director of the company bubble, or a pata familias bubble, which gives us a certain degree of, of security, of uh, position, of status. But in doing so, it severs us from the wider network of living relations into which we were born, in which we grow older, and eventually back into which we perish. So it is hard, the Buddha says, for people who love, delight and revel in the place to see this ground And then he describes this ground. He says, it's the Ida Pachayata Paticha Samupada. Ida Pachayata literally means this conditionality. I've translated it as the this conditioned. It's an odd word. It's difficult to find an expression in English. 
It's also a term that only occurs in this one passage in the Pali Canon. It's not something that's picked up and developed into a doctrine. The this conditioned. It's striking also the, 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 the number of times the word this occurs. He says, idam tanam, ida pachayata, this ground, the this conditioned, this. This is a way of pointing. It's called a deictic pronoun. It points to something specific. It points to something concrete. It reminds us perhaps of the passage I read out yesterday. The, the monk goes to the forest, sits at the root of a tree, and then when he breathes in long, he understands, I breathe in long. When he breathes out long, he understands, I breathe out long. In other words, he's attentive to the most specific detail of what's happening. And this in many ways goes against the expectation we might have about what spiritual practice or meditation is about. We often think that it's about going beyond the, the specific detail of our ordinary lives and experiencing something beyond, something transcendent, something more ultimately true that doesn't change. But the Buddha seems to be doing this all back to front. He's turning the attention to the world itself and not in an abstract way but in a highly specific way. The breath, the body, the pains in the knee. Or as he says here, a monk is one who acts in full awareness when he's going forward, coming back, looking ahead, <coughs> looking away, flexing and extending his limbs, wearing his robes, carrying his bowl, urinating, defecating. All of which are highly specific and on the face of it, utterly mundane elements of our life. The Buddha's awakening is not an awakening to some great mysterious truth. Or if it is, it's an awakening to the fact that flexing and extending your limb is a great mysterious truth. That urinating and defecating are great mysterious truths. In other words, the Buddha seems to be pointing to the fact that we, because of our attachment to our ego, to our beliefs, to our social position, to our, our place, we don't notice, really, these very extraordinary things that are happening, that we're breathing, that the heart is beating, that your arm is moving, that you're tasting a grain of rice, that you're feeling the wind against your cheek. 
That's your ground. That's the ida pachayata. The conditioned by this. It's as though the Buddha wakes up to the fact that he is in this world and he is of this world in a highly distinctive way each moment. Which he then goes on to describe as paticca samupada. This is this famous um, idea that runs through the whole of Buddhist tradition. It's usually translated as dependent origination. Or I would prefer to translate it as conditioned arising. Conditioned arising. In other words, the Buddha has become alert to the fact that nothing occurs in and of itself or by itself. Everything arises because it is embedded in a web of relationships. That the world is constantly unfolding and disappearing, unfolding and disappearing. Hence, all this emphasis on impermanence, unreliability, suffering. Nothing remains the same for two consecutive moments. That we live in a flux, in a process that is ongoing, constantly in motion, arising and vanishing. One of the classical accounts of dependent origination or conditioned arising, if I can find it, which I can't, it might be here. Oh, here we are. The Buddha says, I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. With the arising of this, that arises. When this does not exist, that does not come to be. With the stopping of this, that stops. Again, the deictic pronoun, this, that, this, that, starting, stopping, arising, ceasing. This is a, perhaps a rather unfamiliar way of speaking, but what he seems to be pointing to is once again uh, the, the arising and the passing of what is ever is happening in this moment. He says, let be the past, let be the future. I shall teach you the Dhamma. When this exists, that comes to be. Now again, you may, have been, you may be familiar with this um, expression, this statement or not. But I think it's very difficult to, to, to actually grasp what it means. Sounds simple, but I don't think it's very easy to really understand. There's another passage here when he talks about conditioned arising. This is in the in the uh, the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, I think. He says this conditioned arising is profound, and it appears to be profound. 
It is through not understanding, not penetrating this Dhamma, that people have become like tangled balls of string, covered with a blight or a disease, tangled like coarse grass, unable to pass beyond states of woe, ruin and repetition. So by not grasping, by not understanding this conditioned arising, which he speaks of as this ground, you become like a tangled ball of string, unable to pass beyond states of suffering, of ruin and repetition. Again, the image of a tangled ball of string. You're all knotted up, confused, very difficult to unravel and also as string not terribly useful. You're knotted up. So the implication I think therefore is that as long as we are attached and obsessed by our place, our ego identity, our religious identity, our social identity, our national identity, in some ways we get tangled up in that and we fail therefore to really experience fully our life as it is unfolding and vanishing in each instant. But it's odd in a way that he speaks of this conditionality, this contingency would be another word we could use, he speaks of this as a ground, a tanam, tanna. In some ways this is, I think, a deliberate um, provocation to the religious caste of his day, the Brahmins. For the Brahmins, for the priests of ancient India, the ground in Sanskrit, the Adishtana, it's the same word, the ground is God, Brahman, the impersonal absolute, beyond all name and form, the ultimate ground of being, pure being in and of itself, an idea that likewise we find in Christian theology. That's the real ground. Now the Buddha's turning around and saying, no, it's not. The real ground is life itself in all of its impermanence, in all of its pain, in all of its unpredictability. That's the ground. I was told recently by a Pali scholar that the word tanna also means the, the tonic in musical theory. The tonic is the note to which the piece of music resolves. And so you have a string quartet in E-sharp minor. E-sharp minor is the tonic. It's the point, it's the, it's the note to which it's the, 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 the music will resolve itself. For example, da-da-da-da-da-da. The next note's the tonic. So there's something about Paticca Samupada that is like the tonic note, the key note, 
the kind of musical um, hum, like the in Indian music you have the what's it called that instrument, the drone, that kind of holds the raga in a way. So paticca samupada contingency dependent arising. That's the kind of keynote of the Dhamma, of the Buddha's teaching. And in fact, we have another passage. One who sees conditioned arising sees the Dhamma. And one who sees the Dhamma sees conditioned arising. So the kind of ground that the Buddha is speaking of here is not a solid um, uh, fixed place that supports everything by not moving itself. But rather this ground is perhaps more similar to water. It's like water supports things. It supports fish and boats and insects that run around on its surface. But there's nothing particularly solid to it. Life is in a way like a stream, like a flowing body of water. And the person who has gained this insight deeply within themselves, the Buddha calls the one who has entered the stream, the sotapanna, the stream entrant. So the metaphor of of water, the metaphor of fluidity is one that recurs in Buddhist thought. So in a way the Buddha has let go of of firm ground in his life, metaphorically, and has somehow found a way to uh, to participate, uh, to engage with the shifting, flowing flux of life itself. But if we go on in this passage, we find that this ground is not just about the the changing condition nature of the world and of ourselves, but also this ground has something to do with the way we experience it. And he says, it's also hard to see this ground the stilling of formations. In other words, the quietening of all of the chatter and all of the obsession and fear in the mind. It's a quietening of the mind. The relinquishing of bases. Again, the idea that we let go of things we can otherwise hold on to, become attached to. The fading away of craving the mind achieving a degree of stillness and peace and quiet where it's not constantly looking for something to get or to get rid of. Desirelessness, a kind of openness to what's happening without any judgment or preference. Stopping, which is usually understood as the stopping of grasping which is understood as Nibbana. Nibbana, Nibbana does not mean some kind of Buddhist heaven. It simply means the absence of greed, of hatred and stupidity. 
So it's not that this awakening, therefore, is not just gaining some sudden insight into the conditioned world, but it's also gaining that insight from a new perspective within yourself, one in which all of the um, neurotic habits of clutching and grasping and fearing and wanting have at least momentarily died down. And so we can see here, I think, what it is or an account of what it is we try to do in meditation. On the one hand, by watching the breath, by focusing on a specific object, that brings us into a certain state of calm, of quiet. And in that calm and quiet, we have the possibility of experiencing life from a new perspective. So the ground is what we cultivate when we sit and when we walk. We cultivate this ground within ourselves in order to be open to the ground of life itself as it's present to our senses, our feelings, our minds, our intuitions. And that's where I'll stop today. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.